Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes... With the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and I've got a guest on today who's here for the third time. So let me just recount before we introduce him. Uh, late 2015, early 2016, me and media lawyer Tony Morris did two podcasts to help promote the book, The Filmmaker's Legal Guide. As well as, as well as practicing law, Tony teaches filmmaking as well, which is the legal, the legal sections with his students. And they were repeatedly asking him uh, for a resource, I think it's safe to say. And uh, he looked into the marketplace and he found that there's lots of legal books, very dense text, very academic, but not very helpful or practical. And so he took it upon himself to write the Filmmaker's Legal Guide. Uh, and so here we are in March 2019 with a bigger, thicker, new edition. Welcome to the show, Tony Morris. Thank you very much, Stuart. Now, you've, you've updated the text, which obviously comes with a revision. Uh, in particular, you've extended topics such as filming in public places, uh, new sections on virtual reality, the general data protection regulation, which hurts my head when I read that section. And, uh, hurts ours as well. <laughs> And, and, and ultimately its effects on filmmakers, shopping agreements and using intellectual property in social media. Uh, plus, you've, you've increased specimen contracts to it from 7 to 18, I think, isn't it? Uh, there's 18 and then there are two schedules which effectively take it to 20, yeah. Oh, big number, big number. So, so in, in, a, in a broad sense, do you want to explain first what prompted you to revise what was already a very useful resource for filmmakers? Yeah, essentially it was questions coming up at lecture, at mm -hmm. lectures that I was giving, and also client um, matters where uh, I do refer clients to sections of the book because then it saves me writing a whole thing. And I, and I realised there were things that, that needed to be looked at. Um, I suppose the one that really um, was obvious was shopping agreements, which have become incredibly popular over the last two or three years. And then um, when I did the first edition, I put a few contracts in there just really to make up the book a bit. Mm -hmm. But um, I found that um, they weren't comprehensive enough. And the, the way that filmmakers seem to be using the book uh, is not really as a substitute for legal advice. The f sort of filmmakers who are using the book um, 
as an important resource are very often those who've got no legal budget at all. So I actually <laughs> thought that I'd make their lives a little bit easier by putting a more comprehensive selection of, of contracts there. Mm. And I revised the ones that, that, that were already there. So it's effectively a completely new suite of contracts. And in fact, as some of the um, feedback that I've had, people have managed to use the book and the contracts even on the first edition to create mm. a complete film. So, out of interest, I wasn't aware that the shopping agreement had sort of become more popular as, as, over the last few years. So what, what is it about the shopping agreement outside of other legal contracts you get around filmmaking that, that's been made it popular? In the past, typically, people would option books for the film rights. Mm -hmm. And the problem about that, as you probably know, is that you, um, you get an option agreement and that gives you the right to develop a project over 12, 18, 24 months. Uh -huh. um, and the person who owns the rights in the underlying book, the author or the publishing house, will want to know at the very beginning if you succeed in raising the money for your film on the basis of the option, they will want to know the deal that is going to be on offer when the option is exercised and the film is made. So in a sense, you're negotiating an option agreement mm -hmm. and you're pre-agreeing the rights agreement upon which the rights will vest in the producer from the publisher. So what could be a very simple um, arrangement actually becomes a full-blown legal negotiation. And of course, you're negotiating about something which is potentially nothing. Yeah, because as you well. know, for every option that's signed, um, or for every hundred options assigned, maybe one project will be made. Mm -hmm. So the shopping agreement is a one-two page agreement which essentially operates to a certain extent on good faith, mm -hmm. where, where I say to you, okay, you can go out and shop uh, the filmmaker's guide for uh, you know, a 3D movie um, mm -hmm. IMAX film, yeah. Um, and we'll agree all the detailed terms if and when you manage to succeed in getting a deal for the film. So in one page, I give you those rights. Hmm. You'll want some kind of an exclusive. But what it means is that we can sit down and agree a one or, page two, one or two page agreement without having to negotiate detailed terms. We're just taking each other on trust hmm. that as and when the deal comes to fruition, that I'm not going to try and exact ridiculous terms for what you have done by succeeding in, in, in raising the finance. Okay, so in a sense, if I, it, it, it avoids having to nail it all down to start with, but exactly. leaves it open to essentially standard sort of market pressures to what the, what the worth of any options is in the future when you've raised the finance. Exactly. You can't hold someone to ransom. Well, th that's where there's an element of trust. Okay. I have seen shopping agreements in literally five lines. Okay. There's a very, uh, one particular literary um, agent that I deal with, he says, look, either we're going to do a deal or we're not. And if they try and, uh, if anyone tries to be clever, mm -hmm. then there's no deal. Okay, that's simple, isn't it? Um, so it's, it's, it's an old fashioned concept called trust. <laughs> We'll get to that later on uh, Good Faith. Uh, so, so virtual reality is a new topic that you've got in the book. Yes. Um, 
film festivals have got programs dedicated to it now, but there's no real commercial market yet, is there, for, for VR? So what, what, are we, what are we learning at the moment in terms of the legal aspects for VR? Right. Um, well, actually, I, 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 this was something that someone said, what are the legal issues of VR? They asked me in a question. And in, it, it, there's, there's two answers to the question. Firstly, the general principles of contract and intellectual property mm -hmm. apply to creating, making, and producing and exploiting a film. However, there are a few particular things that come up which are in the process of development. In terms of content, you've got the whole concept of user-generated content and where the underlying rights are and all that type of thing. And again, if you actually follow through what you're doing, it's general principles of who created the copyright, was there an existing copyright that has been changed, there's that aspect of it. Oh. But then the thing that the VR producers were most um, highlighted to me was the user experience. So when you've got your headset on and you're wandering around, um, you can trip over, you can fall over, uh, you can have psychological impact from having your head in one of these things for too long. Mm. And it's, it's the sort of disclaimers that are necessary to be input into the user, um, the end user agreement, or for example, you know, if you go into a, one of these um, arenas, uh, not arena, but theatre or, or, or space, yeah. a public space. Oh. It's the people who operate those spaces wanting to disclaim any liability for you falling over and breaking your leg whilst you're fighting an intergalactic battle in your head. Yeah, I, t I tried one of the Haunted House VR experiences and I don't think, I lasted eight minutes. Um, I, I don't think I wanted to be that scared. Truth be told, even though I'm a horror fan, it's a very, it is a very different experience, and I hadn't thought of that. The idea that it's not so much about the intellectual property, but more about <laughs> what happens to the film when it gets to be seen. Uh, which obviously, if you sat in a cinema or sat watching Netflix at home, you don't run that risk, do you? No. As, a, as an end user. Well, I think um, I think it's Sony or one of the big companies basically say, please make sure you're sitting down at all times oh. when you're using our uh, equipment. Otherwise, if you trip over and break your neck, it's not our fault. Right, now... Inevitably, there will be a lawsuit in America at some point about indeed, that. Indeed, just to test it all for us. Yeah. Uh, now, the, one of the big things I mentioned there in the, in, in the intro that's different because it only came in, in in May 2018, is the General Data Protection Regulation. Now, before we started this interview, this isn't necessarily yours or anyone's specialist subject, but, but in a very general sense, why, why is it important to include it in the book and why is it important for filmmakers to begin to think about it, even if they can't get their head around okay. it? Okay, well, so in common with vast numbers of lawyers who do not specialise in this area, <laughs> up until now, I've found the whole concept of data protection quite um, very academic and quite difficult to get my head around. Um, when I started looking into the GDPR, as it's called, I suddenly realised that it would have particular application to documentarians in the sense that um, the way my immediate thought process was, well, if I sit down with someone and interview them for a documentary and I get my release um, and the release enables me to use the um, interview for all the purposes of documentary, uh, 
-hmm. And of course, there is a, a precedent for that in the appendices to the book. It suddenly occurred to me that applying the strict language of the, of the GDPR, it would be possible for an interviewee to say, even after the thing was edited and ready to roll, change my mind, you can't use it. And the thought that that could happen to, to filmmakers who'd raised money and spent time running around the world interviewing people, putting together a complex documentary, was quite frightening. But it looks to me, on the basis of the way in which the law applies, that there are a number of, uh, well, one particular way in which um, the documentarian would not be subject to facing such a challenge mm -hmm. um, on the basis of, of legitimate interest and the fact that there was a commercial investment and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, I do foresee at some point that issue being raised in real time, mm. and it could be that a court would take a, a different view. Um, but I think being forewarned is forearmed, and ensuring that all your interviewees sign a proper release mm. uh, that recognises the investment uh, in time, resource, creativity, is something that documentarians and, and other people and yeah, other yeah. filmmakers interviewing people in real circumstances were, um, should, should take account of. Yeah, because I think, I think for most of us, we'll have experienced the introduction of this legislation by getting umpteen emails telling us, <laughs> do you want to be on this email list, basically? Which is, our data, which is protecting our data, isn't it? Yep. So the idea that that's, and obviously we, that makes you really understand that you can withdraw your consent because you go unsubscribe. Or, you, or in the first instance, if you didn't respond, they were going to take you off. So the idea that that, that that flexibility applies to something that you've filmed. Now, in your book, you go, especially if it's controversial. So use a, a present example. If you look at like, the documents like Leaving Neverland, that was fraught with controversial. And if you, if you were the filmmaker that invested all that time, effort and resources, and then a key 20-minute interview, suddenly that interviewee says, I don't want to be in your film. So how does this, this idea of, of, um, of legitimate interest, how do you think it's going to work to protect the filmmaker where, obviously, I can just remove myself from an email list and nobody says, oh, but we've invested time in our email strategy, Stuart, you know. No, I think it's slightly different. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, the legitimate interest, I think, is really the investment time resource um, and getting the interviewee to recognise it when they sign the release. Okay, so, so the idea that you, because obviously... I'm, 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 you're now making me worry, but I think I put something in no, my, you did, no, my it, draft in there to cover it. So. No, of course. I mean, because the, the main thing is, that in my head, when I read the bit, the bit that says, and as part of your release almost, you're saying, you cannot at any time, is, is what the law is saying. So that feels like, that doesn't feel so secure as, here's a, as the past was, here's a release form, right, you're in my film. Yeah. You know, there's a big... It, it's no, woolly, there, there, it? there is a grey area. Yeah, that's what I'm... That's what there I'm, is a grey area. Mm. Okay, uh, so with that in mind, you've a section you've updated is filming in the street. Now, is that is that linked to this? Um, it's not so much. Uh, there's no real sort of section on filming in the street. It's just that um, when I'm at universities and, and and places where I lecture, a lot of the questions are directed to, oh, I'm filming this, that, and the other in the street. Can I do that? So where. There are different bits and pieces throughout the book where I've just brought out odd things 
you know, about uh, background music and the, the point at which the background music is in the foreground and at what point you need to clear the music. For example, you know, you're driving down the street, sorry, you've, you're filming someone on the street and a car goes by and they're playing Bob Marley and it's in the background. Okay. Well, that's um, incidental inclusion. If the car stops and you're, you know, you're filming in Jamaica and you're doing a film about reggae and you, you focus in, you know, Bob Marley is really popular to, in Jamaica even today. Mm. And, and, it, and, and you focus in on the fact that this car is stuck at the traffic lights and he's playing, you know, no woman, no, no cry. Yeah. At that point, it's no longer incidental inclusion. You're making a directorial decision to include that music in your film. And at that point, you have to clear it. So there's all that kind of thing mm. that I brought out at, at different points in the book. Okay, because that, 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 that reminds me of something that's under the, um, under the, the new regulation we talked about earlier, is you mentioned about how even stock footage companies are blurring out faces and stuff. No, in. they are, yeah. I mean, is, is I mean I've seen stock footage uh, terms and conditions, which basically, well, they, they, it's the usual thing. Um, here's the footage, clear it. You know, we don't warrant that you can use this for any particular reason. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's the whole thing, if you can be identified on a film. Mm. You know, it's, it's the way something's used. You know, you might be, um, someone might be on the street and included in a, in a film about a subject, it might be a, a you know, a pro-war demonstration or an anti-war demonstration, and they hold the opposite view. And in some way, they're being associated with the theme of, 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 of the film, which they don't want to be. But um, I think there, there gets to be a point where the theory becomes too... The practical application of theory becomes too cumbersome. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, you've got to take a realistic view. But I mean, the point is with, with, with all documentaries, um, I regularly review documentaries for a number of producers when they finish them and you know, they're getting E&O policies. Uh, please review it. And I say, well, what do you want me to look at? And they say, everything. So I need to think about all these things. Okay, now, um, one of, one of um, a big aspect of collaborating to make a film is is going to be uh, the inclusion of, of everyone's good faith in, in getting something over the line in in practical and legal terms. And you've got a, in your section about it, um, you, you make a point which I think is interesting about what good faith is. I mean, first I was surprised to learn that in America it's a given, whereas we have to spell it out, which is I think is an interesting thing between the UK and the USA to understand. Um, and then. And I think your, your point at the end raises the question, actually, which is, why, if someone's resisting good faith as a term, uh, should that be a red flag, Tony? Ah, well, that, now you're on something that I'm... <laughs> I'm a, yeah. Um, right, OK, so... In California law, New York law, and I dare say many other states' laws, good faith is implied, right, as you said. The reason why I think it's a red flag is, is this, and it's, it, it's just the way that I see the, the legal world. Um, I 
very often insert in contracts, particularly filmmaking contracts, uh, an obligation of good faith. And the reason that I do that is because having done this for many, many, many years, as we in the independent film world know, there are, particularly in the UK and elsewhere, a number of ne'er-do-wells who kind of prey on the outskirts of the film world, who, are, who don't act in good faith. And there are all sorts of Facebook pages and websites where these people are named and shamed. And um, it's very sad for me when I look at these particular pages and you think, oh, I just worked for X on such and such a film and I didn't get paid. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the runner or the makeup person or the lighting person who, who, who needs the income. I think it's dreadful. I very often put good faith obligation in a contract for the simple reason it's not implied in English law. And those of us working in the independent film industry have too often come across people who are just not straight. They're not real filmmakers. I think they see the film industry as uh, somewhere there's lots of money flowing around, they think. Um, and, you know, they, they set up dodgy companies and they act in bad faith. They take investors' money and they don't pay cast and crew. And I think, um, from my point of view, uh, I'm reasonably selective about who I take on as clients. Um, I've been in the profession long enough that I can usually detect when someone's not right and I don't want to act for them. Um, so I put that specific obligation of good faith in, partly as a tester, because if you're going into a project and you're, you're genuine, why would you not agree to it? If you don't agree to it, then my question to the other party or their lawyer is, well, why are you not prepared to agree to act in good faith? The inference is that you're not prepared to do that. Why would my client want to sign a contract with someone who's not prepared to agree to act in good faith? And it's that simple. No, I th and I think it's a really... It, it seems too obvious to be true, but it, it, it's, it's... Well, the, the, the other thing is this. Is, uh, it, it gives you a very potentially simple way of terminating a contract if you don't like it. So if there's a course of behaviour whereby, uh, see what you do is my view of a breach of good faith is that it's what we call an irremediable breach of contract. Once you're out, once you breach that good faith, you can't remedy it. It's not like um, the clauses in contracts, if you commit a breach of a contract, you've got seven days in which to sort it out. You've paid me late. Unless you pay me within t seven days, I'm going to terminate. Well, actually, you know, the money got held up. Here it is. Breach remedied. You're happy, I'm happy. But if it's a breach of good faith, if there's a series of things, oh, well, yeah, the, the van didn't turn up, the, the money's in Hong Kong, um, yeah, well, we did sign this actress, but she changed her mind. If there's a series of things where it's obvious that the other party is just not being straight, you say, you're breaching your obligation of good faith. It's an irremediable breach. I'm terminating now. Got you. Um, just thinking in more general terms, um, and, and obviously we've talked about the challenges of trying to capture something like new, new acts that affect data protection. What for you, and, I'm, and the, big, the big 
the big elephant in the room is Brexit, but uh, what for you was the, was, the, was the big challenge in terms of updating a book, in terms of wanting to keep it practical and not fall into, I guess, the trap that you'd seen with other books you'd see in the marketplace of it being too academic or too much for lawyers and solicitors and not for the filmmaker to gain some practical knowledge they can take forward? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, one of the guys that runs one of the courses that I teach on basically said to me, what do you want to change it for? It's fine as it is. My, I'm very happy to recommend this book to my students. Um, and I thought, well, that's very nice of you, but actually I, I, I believe that there are bits missing and I can make it better and I'd like to supplement it. Um, the Brexit thing was a bit of a, is a curved ball. So I, I, I finished, I've, I got my manuscript nailed in, in the beginning of January. Uh, it didn't go to press until I know, two, three weeks ago. And we were in the middle of all these votes about this, that and the other, which I, uh, you know, you kind of hold your nose, close your eyes and, and try and get your head around it. Um, so I did actually add a paragraph right before we went to press to say, who knows? Um, I'm not answering the question. What was the question? No, you are. You are. That, that's part. That was, for me, that was the elephant in the room and I prompted you with that. But generally speaking, though, what for you was the challenge to keep the book a practical guide to legal, to, to legal aspects of filmmaking versus being a legal academic book? Um, that's quite easy, really, because um, my approach to dealing with clients is always there is no point in me it making some you know complicated academic explanation about point of law. Mm -hmm. When a filmmaker comes to me and says, "Look, this is what I want to do, um, and I think I need some legal advice." You know, I'm not pontificating. For me, uh, the route to gold is to simple steps. All right. So, um, and when I do my lectures, it's you know I try to explain things in a very simple way. They don't need to know that you know Lord Justice somebody said this, that, and the other about a contract in 1973. It's looking at things purely practically. And all I really did with this book was to add in bits that I tried to write in the same way that I had written the rest of it. I mean, some of the text, probably half the text is exactly the same. But as I was reading it through, I, you know, I changed sentences. You know, you look at it, you think, yeah, I could have said that better. There were two or three things that I did rewrite that you wouldn't notice. Um, but when I read them, I thought, that isn't simple enough. So, there, for example, there were examples of um, going back on your word, estoppel in English. I, I completely rewrote that. Um, just to make it all ascertainable and understandable. And, and, in, and in the three years since we spoke, has, has there been, in, in terms of the, the, the contract templates and stuff that you've, you've added and also the, the existing ones you may have updated, has there been any considerable shifts in terms of what's needed in those contract templates that um, you've had to add? Yeah, the, the, the data protection stuff, is, I, I think I put it in quite a lot of them. Um, 
No, not really. Um, I don't think so. Okay. No. I mean, it, there's just more of the contracts, you know. Uh, so I put in a director and a producer and a, you know, I, I completely beefed up the location, although there may not have been one. Uh, it also gave me a good opportunity to spring clean some of my own day-to-day uh, -day precedents. <laughs> um, now, I went, I went out to some of my film, filmmaker peers to sort of, uh, opportunities to speak to yourself. I thought, well, I'll see if they've got any, any pertinent questions that might be useful and we can maybe okay. relate back to the book if possible or just generally give your thoughts on it. Um, so, what paperwork do, do you need to acquire literary intellectual property, like a short story or a novel, was, was the first question. Well, essentially, uh, a transfer, an outright assignment of the film rights. Okay, so for example, uh, you write a novel uh, called, I don't know, Horror in St. Paul's or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and I want to make the film. In an ideal world, I want an assignment of an exclusive assignment of the film rights and ideally the right to make prequels, sequels, remakes. Okay? Now prior to that you might give me a shopping agreement but I might insist on an option mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I'd want an exclusive option. Um, you know the tricks are it. You may say well I'm not going to give you an exclusive. You can have the exclusive film rights to make a, a, a film within the next five years. After that, your rights expire, and I'm not giving you remake rights, and I'm not giving you prequel or sequel rights. Oh. So it, it's all a matter of contracts. So ideally, if you're the filmmaker, you want to get the maximum number of rights, or you want your, your assignment to cover the most extensive range of rights possible. Oh. And what would you, would you think you'd need sort of separate agreements for short and feature film versions of a short story no you wouldn't do that no no you'd want when you when you acquire the rights these days particularly um i would say 99 percent of the options that i do these days in assignments it's for we have the right to do either a feature one or more feature films or a tv series and obviously the payment uh, is is graded accordingly as to what it is you're you're going to make but people uh, nowadays, they come, you know, filmmakers thinking, well, you know, we'd quite like to make a film, but we might actually think about trying to do a, a four-parter or a six-parter for Netflix or whatever. The Netflix is the sort of uh, the ideal to which many filmmakers now aspire. <laughs> so you need to be quite flexible in your paperwork to cover the possibility that you might want to do that. Well, that gives me a lovely segue. So how do we see the legal arrangements re residuals, profit participation and the like in a changing sector that has players like Netflix that are no longer even part of the cinema distribution chain anymore. Yeah, it's, it, you know, how, however hard you try and cover it, you probably won't entirely, but it, it's really a matter of contract. It's, um, you know, a question of thinking what are the possibilities and for providing, and, you know, in the catch-all, X percent of all and any other income from any other other sources oh. so it's it, it's a straightforward matter of dealing with things by way of contract okay uh, and then finally and I think this touches on your, your, your discussion we had earlier about good faith but somebody asked me how how can so many sales agents and distributors get away without reporting their quarterly takes 
And as a filmmaker, what can be done? Camera, camera, camera. And for those of your listeners who don't know what a camera is, yeah. a camera is a collection account management agreement. And what it means is that all of those who are participating in the income from a film sign up to a collection account management agreement. And collection accounts, there are the two main providers are Fintage and Freeway. Mm -hmm. uh, they charge a setup cost and they take 1% of all the revenue. But all of the distributors, licensees, exhibitors, all the money gets paid to the collection account and then the collection manager disperses everything. So the money doesn't go through the sales agent and so on. Now, the arguments that you're met with is, oh, it's expensive, it's not worth doing. Um, may be true. I mean, from my experience, you're looking at paying an upfront fee of somewhere between three dollars and $5,000 to set up the account. Now, if you've got a film that's not going to make any money, it may well not be worth doing it. Um, but the other, and, and then the other area where I find resistance is in television. Now, if you've got BBC or Channel 4 or someone selling your series or whatever it is, you can be pretty comfortable that you're, that you're going to get accounted to and paid. But I've had um, one heinous example. I mean, I can think of many examples of this. Mm -hmm. One heinous example of this was a, a, a very, very well-known actor client of mine who uh, was in a, a big um, TV series that it was an international co-production. There were at least three countries involved. <coughs> um, it went to, I think, three seasons. He was on, I don't know, two, three, four percent of of the of the net profit. Uh, two, probably two, actually. And what happened was they had um, uh, an SPV to make the thing, uh, make the, and then that assigned the rights to someone else and someone else. And he only had a contract with the SPV. And one of the things that I always, always insist on, to the extent that I can, is novation arrangements. So you put a clause in the contract that says that the, the, the producer can assign, provided that the producer first requires the assignee to enter into a direct covenant with the director, writer, actor, to be bound by the terms of the contract and to account and pay the back end. And that means that each time the contract gets flipped on, the actor or the writer has a direct arrangement with the next person down the line that they can chase them. It doesn't mean to say you're going to get paid and it's not as good as a camera, um, but it's something. Unfortunately, uh, with some companies resist that. And they say, oh, well, um, if we do that, it's a lot of paperwork, it's this, it's that and the other, and every time the thing is assigned, then someone else has got to sign one of these contracts. And I always say, well, fine, but how do we know that, that you know, Mr. Actor is going to get paid? He says, oh, well, you can trust us. And it's so, you know, the answer is, Stuart, that there isn't really an answer. You, as a lawyer, you can advise on best practice, and you can try and use your persuasive skills uh, to say, look, this is the way it's got to be done. 
obviously policing that and making it happen in practice is, uh, 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 both other things. Um, but that's the theory of it. Okay, well, one last thing then. So when, when can people get the new um, Filmmaker's Legal Guide? Right, well, the, the physical copies are, are, are around and um, there's a Facebook page, um, Filmmaker's Legal Guide, and I can put the information up there. Um, and the Kindle version will probably go up online within the next couple of weeks. So uh, I would say, you know, we're looking at the beginning of April of 2019. Okay, well, that gives me to say... Thank you very much, Tony Morris, for your third appearance on the BritFlix Thank podcast. You. Thank you for having me. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something wrong before.